Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the ASF Weekly Science Podcast this week. It is August 31st, the last day of August 2020. This week has been the week of ASF staff appearing on podcasts. Our president, Allison Singer, shared her insight about being a mother and a sister of a person with ASD on a Mount Sinai School of Medicine podcast about resiliency. Her mother and daughter were also featured. I was on a podcast called The Scoop, hosted by Sarah Troutman and Feta Amaliti, who live in California. It was part jokes, part vaccines, and part bad language. Please check them both out. But back to the ASF Science Podcast, and there's been some interesting science to report. First, if you didn't hear about this already, John Constantino and his colleagues did a deep dive, so to speak, on why there are racial disparities in ASD diagnosis. The latest CDC numbers suggest that the disparities between white kids and Hispanic kids in the time it takes to get a diagnosis and the actual receipt of that diagnosis is narrowing, but that's not so much for African-American kids. African-American kids are still getting diagnosed later and less often, but why? There have been a lot of suggestions. Is it because pediatricians that serve African-American families don't know as much about autism? Do African-American families not have insurance to cover the cost of evaluations? Do they not access care and specialty services? Are there cultural biases about an autism diagnosis? Well, all these things can be true, but is there one thing we can focus on? And clearly to understand the experience of African-American families with autism, you have to talk to African-American families with autism. And that's what this study did. They dug into the records of about 500 African-American families with a child with ASD. About 400 had a male child and 100 had a female child. So that's about right. The families were enrolled in something called AGREE. That refers to the Autism Genetic Resource Exchange. If you're old like me, you'll remember this program. It was originally a project of Cure Autism Now, which merged with Autism Speaks in 2007. The NIH also gave several universities grants to collect information about families across the spectrum. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, you name it. They went to the homes of people with an autism diagnosis, collected blood, autism diagnostic assessments, measures of cognitive ability, and behavioral problems, you name it. The clinicians spent days, not hours, with the families. Another part of what was collected was an event history calendar. Now, this event history calendar interview contained six sections. One was when first concerns and help-seeking experiences appeared. Two were demographic, socioeconomic status, things like that. The third was age at first ASD diagnosis, and then also first-time special services were started, and this could have been early intervention, private interventions, or even school-aged education. Fifth, interactions with other service systems, and finally, an appraisal of the overall odyssey, the diagnostic odyssey, which is the entire process of that first concern to actually getting into interventions. This interview uses event history calendar interview methods, which are research methods that aim to improve the accuracy and completeness of an event recall by actually employing personal memories as cues for recalling the details of interrated events. So this is done by tying the events to things in the life, like a birthday party and other milestones, like a job, a divorce, birth, or other events in the family as anchors. They're used as point of references, which helps improve the exact timing of when things happened. Parents are asked about highly memorable personal and historical landmarks that informants can vividly recall. 
like a death or a divorce. And they're used to primary call before asking about things like age of first concern and diagnosis. So when did you lose your job? And then kind of anchor different events and recollections around that. This has been shown to actually improve the accuracy of, of event recall. So some of the things tracked in this interview was number of visits to professionals, the wait to see a professional, costs, uh, quality of the evaluation, many scheduling conflicts, and of course, insurance coverage and difficulties paying. At the same time that this interview was being done, the clinicians were also evaluating things in the child with autism, like problem behaviors, cognitive ability, visual ability, verbal ability, to kind of understand any behavioral issues that might have impeded a diagnosis. So I'm just going to throw this out there. Kids with intellectual disability and problem behaviors are more likely to be identified and diagnosed early. So for example, and this is not the truth, do African-American kids with autism have less problem behaviors and normal cognitive abilities so it's harder for them to be diagnosed? That was a question. It wasn't the answer. In fact, that isn't the case, and you'll hear why. As it turns out, the mean age of diagnosis of African-American kids was 64.9 months. That's like five and a half years old. And this was over three years after the parents initially reported concerns about their child's language, behavior, or development. That is totally unacceptable. Under any circumstance, that's criminal and unethical. Almost all the parents had some sort of insurance. So why was the delay? As it turns out, it wasn't because they were less cognitively delayed than other races. In fact, the rate of cognitive delay was about 35%. This is slightly higher than white kids and Hispanic kids, which is about 22%. African-American children with ASD have a higher burden of intellectual disability. On its own, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. Now, what could explain this? Well, they did look at the IQ and other family members to see if these um, changes in cognitive ability ran in families. It didn't. So that was that couldn't explain the difference. And while on average, those with cognitive delay and verbal delay were identified earlier, it wasn't so much that it was the only factor in determining the age of diagnosis. It did shorten the time that parents had first concerns to when they shared those first concerns. But the reality is, is that African-American kids are either being diagnosed with ID when they have autism or they have ID or intellectual disability and autism and are not getting the help they need when they need it. Now, five years old is never too late for an intervention, but lots of these interventions happen much earlier and they might have lost the opportunity to obtain meaningful interventions that can ameliorate changes related to intellectual disability as well as improve functioning. So there's no single explanation and there's really no excuse. We have to do better. There is no silver bullet here. They did an analysis to identify what in fact in the, the family or the system was causing these delays and they couldn't identify one particular thing. But it is clear that we need better awareness, better tools for assessment, reduced stigma, better access to families and improved training for physicians, period. One potential benefit of the pandemic is the expanded use of telehealth. Now, families that may not have had access to clinicians because they live too far away or had to take a day off to see a physician, now they have a different option. It may actually allow families to better access care than they had before. We don't know that yet. It's being tested. Remember, we're in this pandemic and all these things are changing very quickly.
Now, if it does improve access for families, we'll take that as a win for COVID-19. The rest of what's going on in this pandemic is just a big loser. Speaking of telehealth, we're all using it. I have. I don't say I love it, but I don't hate it either. And I'm actually grateful to have access to it. I know not everyone does. It may be a viable option for families in remote areas that have had to travel days to see a clinician. And like I mentioned before, that don't have the ability to see a clinician. Maybe they have to take the day off of work. But does it help everything? Is telehealth a panacea? The answer is no. But a big caveat is extended and expanded use is allowing it to be tested more to identify where specifically it can help. Telehealth was, in fact, a big mystery for some before the pandemic. It was being tested in many fields, but in autism, there had only been a few small studies. Just this past week, a study led by researchers in Missouri, Virginia, and China examined the potential of telehealth for insomnia in ASD. As you know, a huge percent, something like 80% people with autism have sleeping issues. Now, melatonin has been shown to work, but again, it isn't the magic bullet. It doesn't seem to help mid-evening or middle-of-the-night awakenings. Other medications have been tried. It didn't really seem to help that much either. Now, sleep hygiene is a good thing for all of us to be doing, and it doesn't hurt, as in turn off the devices an hour before bed, don't drink soda after five o'clock. These are things that make sense and are not harmful and seem to help. But again, it's not a cure-all. There is something about autism that causes sleep disturbances. This is another podcast which I've done, so I'm not going to get into too many details. I will say, however, that in addition to understanding the neurobiology of sleep and what causes this lack of sleep, we need to move forward with treatments from what we know now. A recent study suggested that a specific intervention called cognitive behavioral therapy may be helpful. This includes things like stopping disturbing thoughts that may pop into your head before you fall asleep, journaling your worries at bedtime, developing self-esteem and confidence to sleep alone, and increasing positive thinking. You need to think about why exactly you're having problems sleeping and then deal with them. This isn't something you'd expect a two-year-old to do. This is something probably more appropriate for a 10-year-old or, or older and one that doesn't have significant cognitive impairments. A study earlier this year showed that this cognitive behavioral intervention did work in kids with autism, but only in in-person visits. So how does it do if delivered via telehealth? Does it work? Do parents who also need to follow along with the program adhere to it? What does everyone think of it? Well, the results were mostly positive. There were eight sessions, and most of the families went to at least seven out of eight of them, and they rated them well. One month after follow-up, there were continued improvements in the time from initial lights out to sleep onset, improvements in the time awake from lights out until out of bed, and the total time sleeping and in bed. It improved hyperactivity during the intervention, but not one month out. It's, it's not going to be perfect. The relationship between sleep and hyperactivity is complex, and this was never meant to be the only effective treatment for insomnia. Another good piece of news, though, is that a biological measure of relaxation called heart rate indicated moderate improvements in arousal. Now, this is all good news. The goal of the study was not to figure out if CBT should be the only intervention for insomnia because it shouldn't. It was done to see if the same improvements were seen over telehealth that was seen in person. This is the sort of thing we're going to see more and more of in the future, and we need to. In the case of insomnia and CBT, it seems to have done just that. 
Love it or hate it, telehealth is going to be around for a while, and maybe that's a good thing. Many, many people are taking advantage of online assessments and interventions and consultations that they may not have had access before. And fingers crossed, insurance companies will hopefully continue to cover these services well after the pandemic is over. We need more studies to understand where and when and in whom telehealth is as effective or possibly more effective. They seem to work for some things, maybe not everything, but if it helps, let's keep using it. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.